You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm Carlos Noche, and I'm joined by my outstanding podcast partner, Lisa Snare. Say hi, Lisa. Hi, everybody. Today, we're talking about revenue enablement from building skills in engaging with multiple stakeholders to improving discovery questions via a methodology, if you will, to how do we change the mindset from have to to get to around enablement. And to help us out with this very important topic today, we have Andrea Abate, experienced revenue enablement professional with over 20 years experience and demonstrable success in leading and transforming sales, go-to-market, and revenue enablement functions. Her career spans companies like LinkedIn, Mixpanel, and Showpad. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Wonderful to be here. Thanks for having me. Looking forward. All right, Andrew. To get our audience to know you a little bit better on a little personal basis, we always start with the same question, which is... What is something that you're passionate about that those that only know you through work might be surprised to know about you? Ooh, good question. I don't know if people would be surprised, but it's sometimes something that's not always evident. So in my earlier years, my early 20s, I did quite a lot of stand-up comedy and improv in New York City for my sins. Nice. So... While I try to create an engaging environment and not afraid to crack a joke or two, I think that sometimes in the professional sphere, you have to focus on serious problem solving and people sometimes finding it amusing to know that that was my earlier background. But I maintain actually those skills have really served me well over my kind of sales and enablement career. But yeah, the idea of standing on stage, just being silly and telling jokes is something that's usually comes out after a couple of drinks when you talk about how you got to where you are. (laughs) That's awesome. That's great. I bet you do great speeches at weddings and things like that. (laughs) Writing jokes is the hardest art form there is. And then you think people get afraid of public speaking or I'm afraid to make this pitch or I'm afraid to do this role play. I'm like, you know what the worst feeling in the world is when you're on stage, you, a microphone and the audience, and there's like dead silence. Oh, yeah. There is no worse feeling than bombing on stage. So it's, you try to create the engagement, but you never know how it's going to land with the audience. That's amazing. So from stand-up comedy in New York to you're in London now, and we were talking a little bit before the show and some of how that journey started, but would you tell us, how did you get to where you are today? What's your story? It's a long and winding road, literally and figuratively. So I would say that my sort of journey was less intentional. So I do sales enablement now and go to market leadership. That was like not the plan. I mean, most of these jobs didn't exist when I graduated from college or university, right? So it was one thing kind of leading to another. So my early career was in fundraising in the arts. I worked at the Metropolitan Opera in the early part of my career. I have a bachelor's degree in theater and humanities from NYU. So always thought I'd work in that kind of artistic domain. Let's say my talents were wholly average as a performer, but I wanted to make art happen. Then in 2007, my then boyfriend, now husband, came home and said, hey, I just got a job opportunity to transfer to London. What do you think? And I said then what I have said a few times since that have 
turned out to be the two words that catalyzed complete transformation in my career. I looked at him and said, why not? Off we go to London. And as I was job searching in London for roles in the arts, due to some change of the market and just really different conditions, I ended up getting poached by the headhunter I was working with to find a job. She said, hey, why don't you come work for me? At that point, I was 27. I needed a job. I didn't really know this foreign land. And I said, for the second time, why not? So that opened actually a seven-year career in recruitment, which actually I loved. It taught you two things at the same time. First, serious selling skills, because you and I, We can sell whatever and you get one person to say yes, piece of software, a service, a widget, right? In recruitment, you actually have two customers who need to say yes, the hiring organization, but also the candidate. So if you can get two people to say yes, that becomes a much, much harder sale, especially with the emotions and different drivers of like the human condition. So that was a really interesting grounding. And then On the other side, I really liked helping people improve their lot in life, grow their career, whether I got them a job or not. I always wanted to feel like anyone I worked with came out with a tip, a trick, an advantage, an idea of something that can help them succeed. So in a way, now I look back and think this is the seeds, right, of commercial acumen and salesmanship coupled with really wanting to help people grow and succeed. So in 2013, LinkedIn came knocking at my door. They were post-IPO, but scaling significantly in the EMEA markets. And I was brought on board as the sixth account director for their enterprise SaaS talent solutions here in London. So that was really my entree to like what you'd consider to be former sale, like formal sales. Did that for a couple of years. And then my husband and I wanted to move to Asia just because the market was booming and we were curious to explore, having gotten to know the EMEA markets really well. And LinkedIn said, well, we don't have any sales jobs at the moment, but we are looking for someone to do sales enablement. And I was like, cool, what's that? Didn't even really know what was this job about? What is the scope? What is all of this? This was probably eight years ago, so it was a much less established function, right? And so once they described it to me and I said, oh, okay, that seems like something I could do and maybe I'd be good at. They said, so do you want the job? And for the first third time, (laughs) I said, why not? And so that then unleashed this whole world of coaching and training, kind of combining the kind of science and methodology of selling with the art of what's actually going to change these people's behavior to get this field to start moving the dial from X to Y. So Yeah, that's kind of opened up this chapter. But I'd say that kind of three key attributes I've used throughout has been open-mindedness, being opportunistic, and transferability. So yeah, it's, as I said, a long and winding road, but here we are. Awesome. It's an interesting one, though. (laughs) Yeah. Word for it. (laughs) Take the scenic route, Andrea. (laughs) We're still on the journey. (laughs) So when I do presentations for years, I was always joke around. Uh, I'm only doing this until Saturday Night Live calls me and then I'm out of here. <laughs> My head, I always thought I'd be kind of funny. But then again, maybe it's just me. So let's talk about a revenue enablement. 
So first off, can you define it for me? Like, what do you mean by it? So I don't assume it's one thing and it's really another. You've hit upon probably the most vexing aspect of revenue enablement, which is ask 10 people what it means. You're going to get 10 different answers. But basically, I subscribe to the general definition that it is the service, because that's really what it is, the process and the service of equipping customer-facing revenue-generating teams, pre-sales, post-sales. If you talk to customers and you're part of a buying cycle at all, then you need the right training, tools, content, and general approach to being able to generate revenue better, okay? And the way I like to distill it, so revenue enablement, you could say, well, doesn't having access to a CRM system, that enables revenue, right? We have historical information about our customers. We can coordinate as an account team, right? So technically, yes. But the way I like to think about it is in three buckets. Are we trying to move the dial on knowledge, skills, or behavior? And then what are the components that would equip people to move the dial in those ways? So for instance, it's not about content. It might be about knowledge. You might need a one-pager to foster that knowledge or an e-learning class to learn that thing, but the goal is to move the dial on knowledge. And it's not about sales methodology. It's about skill. Sometimes you need the backbone of the science to enable you to drive that skill. And in terms of behavior, again, it's about not just creating a process, but thinking what needs to happen for people to follow that process and to do it diligently in the way we need. So the ultimate goal of revenue enablement is obviously moving the dial on revenue, but then the interesting kind of art of it is how do we need to make that happen? And based on the configuration of any given organization, who's who in the zoo and what do they do versus you do to kind of make that change happen, that's where it's unique to every organization and set up. Okay, I like that. So we help salespeople make more money. If you want a back of the envelope, like headline, we help sales sell better. We help revenue teams make more revenue. So I like the sales pitch. The one thought I had is this. So if you look at research, organizations that are more consistent in their selling behaviors, their selling motion are more successful than ones that aren't. And I see enablement as, hey, We hired very skilled people, but if we just let them run out on the field, that's like hiring, uh, having a football team saying, hey, they've all played football since their peewee league, so obviously they'll be fine. You got to have plays. You got to have a style that you're trying to play. People got to understand their role in the organization. Like you said, what do I do when and what player we run in? How do we even communicate with each other? So I see enablement is playing a huge role. And how do you even know what the plays are? So you have these pockets of excellence. So enablement effectively is a function. Like, why do you need to pay people in your organization to do this? You can technically enable people without humans, without a team, without a dedicated team, right? Managers do it. Everyone's kind of doing it, right? Marketing's helping. So the idea, though, is that you want to create scaled winning behavior. So what are the best people doing? And you need someone with eyes across the board, right? Like your CRO, they've got eyes across the board, but they've got eyes on so many things, they're not lasered in on that. Or you might have a certain line manager, right, who's got eyes on their team, but doesn't know what the guy next to them is doing. And I think in this post-COVID, very virtual world, 
that's one of the biggest challenges for sales team anywhere is I'm not listening and seeing what's going on. I'm sitting at home on my computer. You're sitting at home on your computer. So who's identifying, ah, Lisa just did that thing that really changed the game. Now, how do we get Carlos to know about it, get inspired by it, perhaps replicate it? And then often you find that your best performers are so unconsciously competent about what they do, right? You find people sometimes, even if you're teaching them or certifying them on a sales methodology, they're like, well, I'm already doing that. And you're like, but did you even know you were doing that? So the idea to create scalable winning behavior is to identify what that winning behavior is, to be able to then bottle it, to then replicate it. So the two analogies, in addition to the football plays I'd give you, is it's like tasting something amazing. Like I have a friend who's actually a recipe developer for an industrial food company. Coolest job ever. But it's wow. hard. It's not like being a chef in a restaurant because they need to be able to replicate taste. So they taste something amazing. And instead of working forward from the ingredient to the product, they're working backwards from the taste to thinking, well, what are the ingredients and the ratio of ingredients that get something to taste this awesome? And then how do we make sure that this brownie or whatever it is can be reproduced at scale in a profitable way, right? So it might not taste like the bakery, the you know artisanal bakery down the street that's unique, but it's a darn good brownie and you could buy it in any supermarket at cost. So enablement is kind of like that job from a revenue organization because we're connected enough to the field to have eyes across the board, looking at data, looking at performance, talking to managers, talking to reps to identify that, right? But then unpack the art of, which is different to doing it, of unpacking, cool, Lisa, that was amazing. Let's unbox how you did that. Not what you did. It's not a case study, but how did you do that? So how do we then get Carlos to prospectively, even if he doesn't have your je ne sais quoi around it, at least move through the motion of replicating your winning recipe. So without that, it's effectively like having a dance troupe, but nobody knows the choreography. Right. I love that. I think that that is the real value to this function, which is often misunderstood and a little bit immature in terms of its recognition and I think kind of solid place in your typical org chart. Everyone knows they need enablement and they're just like, okay, but what and how and how does that look? We're probably still in the early days of that. Okay. Well, something we talked about earlier, which is, so here's my question for you. How can enablement leaders utilize sales skills such as negotiating and discovery to better manage their own stakeholders? It's a good question. I think if it's imperative to your success as an enablement person. I think sometimes enablement gets a bad rap as being you know, we're just about training and we love people and we want to help everyone. And that's true because you don't want to do, if you just want to close deals, go close deals. This job is about helping people improve. However, you are fighting for bandwidth, mindshare, and resource internally. That's the reality of the job. You are part of the cost of sale. And some of that cost is getting people to commit to helping you and doing the stuff either going through your programs, engaging with the enablement at all, or more importantly, taking what they learned and like applying it in the throes of their work. So when they're leaving your classroom and back at their desk, 
you have no span of control over what people do or not do. And there's a ton of stuff around that. So resource in terms of time and in terms of commitment is what you're fighting for. And that is effectively a sale, okay? So if you're not using your sales tactics to get the commitment, the buy-in, the alignment with your stakeholders, you are just being an order taker and being run ragged. Now, there's the discovery and the negotiation, which you mentioned, are probably the two most important skills, as well as anchoring on value. Because usually a sales leader comes to an enablement leader and says, my team need discovery training. My team need negotiation training. My team need this. My team need that. All right, let's press pause here. Some sales leader coming to you and saying, my team need training is like a prospect coming to you and saying, we just want to see the demo. We saw your ad. We saw the website. Show us the demo. Are you going to tell your team, great, just show them the demo they want to see? Or are you going to say to them, pump the brakes, AE, you need to do a proper discovery to then be able to know, do you need to demo? What should you show them, et cetera, right? We often coach to ask why. (laughs) Exactly. And they're like, because they're not hitting the revenue targets and they just need the stuff, okay? So enablement and the desire to help, you just want part of you is like, okay, yes, here's the stuff. But that's just that same pull a salesperson has with wanting to delight their prospect and drive a sale forward. But we know that is a lot of wasted time and resource demoing and getting your solutions engineer and getting it all together when ultimately you have literally no idea what problem you're trying to solve for. Okay. So when I work with sales leaders or when I've coached my team to, if I'm getting that sort of like, I don't want to have this whole why conversation. I just want the stuff. I will actually give them that analogy and say, what you're doing to me is exactly what you're telling me prospects are doing to your sellers, which is the thing you're saying they need training on. And that usually stops people in their tracks because they realize it is the exact same situation, but turned inward. And where negotiation shows up, Carlos, I'm glad you asked that because, okay, let's say you get to the point where you've understood the gap and you're creating the right solution, you then come back with a pitch, right? You're like, great, Carlos, I understand the problem we're trying to solve. I understand the gap we're trying to bridge. What I'm recommending, because I am the expert on the learning and training and et cetera, to solve your problem, we're going to need this four-hour program. So I'm going to need your team off the field for four hours over the next two weeks. And you say, I'm loving the idea of this. I'm bought in. Can we do it in an hour? So in sales, time is money. So people think just because you're enabling, just because you're internal doesn't mean there's a give get. So you got through the first hurdle of getting to proposal stage and now you're negotiating. So again, the sort of the analogy here would be like, okay, if a customer said the solution you proposed is awesome, we're totally bought in, we love what we're seeing here, it's $100,000. So could we have all of this, but could you do it for 25K? What would you do? You'll either say, well, no. if you're a bad salesperson, <laughs> you'll say yes. <laughs> you know, and enablers do that, right? They'll say, okay, okay. And then they try to jam it down the throat, four hours of learning in an hour, and it's confused and it doesn't stick. And Not effective. That's Yeah, it's a yeah. wasted hour. So a good salesperson or a good enablement person says, okay, if budget or in this case, time is a constraint, if that really is a non-negotiable constraint, we will need to identify what 25% 
of your priorities is the most important. And that is what we will solve for you in an hour. If you're telling me you want to solve all these problems, I'm telling you it's a four-hour commit or a $100,000 solution. And again, being transparent that that is what you're doing with them, the same thing they would do with a customer, usually lowers the friction and they appreciate what you're doing. And actually, they respect you more for it. And that's how you move from being like almost like an internal vendor to an actual partner. Agreed. I like it. All right. So in this day and age of a tough economic times, people are getting a little bit less at bats. And one of the things we talked about was discovery. What would make a good discovery methodology to really enable our sales reps to really get the information they need to properly qualify and get the data they need to properly drive the deal forward? You know, in an effort to go faster, I think sometimes we skip that step and then it bites us in the hindy later on. Totally. It's like a slow down to speed up sort of thing. Because what we usually find, and I'm sure for any salespeople or sales leaders listening here, you know, looking at the data of deal close disengage, like when do deals fall down? What percentage of deals that make it through that discovery stage eventually close? It's usually like 50% at best, right? So what I think most of us usually find is that there are things There are reasons deals die in later stages that hand on heart probably could have been covered off or identified in those earlier stages of discovery. And this is excluding things like it's COVID or a huge economic downturn or we're suddenly going bankrupt. Like there are things outside of our control, right? But finding out that there was this extra layer of decision making or you're not anchoring on the right value, like sorry for the crassness, but like that sucks. That is a bad reason for a deal to die because that was more in your control than not. So the way I like to encourage salespeople, first of all, it's mindset, right? You'll say, okay, I got an hour meeting and I need to get through this heavy agenda. So I'll do like 10 minutes of disco, like a 30 minute demo, then talk about objections, then close for next steps. And the ratio is totally off. Your job as a salesperson is not actually to sell. Your job, because guess what? There's this thing called the internet now and everyone knows how to use it. And if it was just about a transaction, your company would save the money, not hire you at all and just let people, just let the customers buy online. Check out our video demo, click this button to buy it. So if it's just about seeing the demo, if it's just about the stuff, you and I go on Amazon all the time, buy a ton of stuff. We didn't have to talk to a human being. And frankly, we're now starting to get used to that behavior. So if we think about the salesperson as a point of sale, a human intermediary, based on where we are in the 21st century, it's no longer the only way to access the product. A salesperson is actually a choice architect. It is the art of getting someone to act in the way you want to get to the outcome that hopefully is a win-win that you're both looking for, but certainly that you as a salesperson are looking for. And especially now with what I'd like to call non-essential purchases. So look, we all need a, a phone. It's just a question of which phone, right? But if you're selling a piece of software or a service where actually you're kind of selling against the status quo, let alone competitors, it's not a must buy. Like if finances were really the issue, this is the stuff that gets cut first, right? Like a value-based sell, you're often having to surface the need 
just as much as you're surfacing the connection between the need and the solution, right? And so the art of that discovery and the role of the salesperson as a choice architect is very, very different to what you'd think it is, which is, let me show you this cool product. Do you want to buy it? Because now, seriously, chat GPT can do it. So effectively, if the understanding of our problems are too loose or too cursory, we might be solving the wrong problem, pitching the wrong thing. And I know I'm saying this and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, obs. But I actually think the biggest barrier to salespeople doing great discovery is not that they don't know a good sales methodology. Again, Google it or your company probably has one of the handful of household name sales methodologies out there. Or your buddy or your manager is like, here's what to find out. It's usually not about the checklist. It's actually about the salesperson truly believing in their heart that if they don't do this well, they are not going to make a penny from this customer. So think about going to a doctor. Like if you go to a doctor, that doctor, if you have like half an hour with that doctor, that doctor is spending 20 minutes asking you about your symptoms, poking around to say like, does this hurt? What about that? If you do that, does that feel weird? How is it when you wake up? How is it when you go to sleep? Like most of that doctor, that doctor knows more than you do about your physiology, about your condition. But think about it. They spend more time asking you about how you feel, about what's going on, about what's happening than they do diagnosing. It's really only in the last like 10 minutes and you're like, I've been here for 20 minutes. Can you just tell me what's wrong with me? And they're like, no. They're like, I will, but not until I understand what's going on with you first. So I think that the salesperson needs to think of themselves like that. You can't diagnose. You can't know what needs to be shown, what solution to propose, how to propose that solution until you know enough. And you got to believe that. And then if we get to soup to nuts, literally, literally, I personally think there's only three questions that ever need answering in a discovery. It's not about agenda. It's about outcomes. Is you as a salesperson can remember that you need to know three things by the end of that call. And they're the art and the questions and the specifics. But here's how I see it laddering up. First thing, what needs to change and why? Why is that for the first question? Well, if nothing needs to change, you got no opportunity. If they're like, everything's great, what are you selling? You're selling a change. You're selling... Something that needs, so what is it that needs to change and why does that need to change? And that clarifies the goal the customer has and the value they, not you, but they see on achieving that goal. That will ultimately be how you prove ROI, right? How do we ensure we have a positive renewal, right? So what needs to change and why? Am I clear? Am I really, really clear? Second, what's standing in the way? So these are the key challenges that whatever you're selling, your solution is solving for. Because honestly, if they're like, we need to double our footprint in the UK, well, what's standing in the way? Nothing. So yes, they have a goal and they have the value of that goal, but they don't have a problem in achieving that goal. So therefore, no need to buy your thing. And then the third question, which again is probably more about the qualification and the process element, but it bubbles up to just, I think it's really basic. What needs to happen for that to happen? So these are the dependencies and the requirements for operationalizing that. Well, we need to do this. We need to buy that. We need that. So, and then so-and-so needs to sign that off, right? Like, so ultimately, if you have that mapped out as a salesperson, what needs to change and why? What's standing in the way? And then what needs to happen for whatever the thing is that needs to change to happen? 
then you have really mapped an opportunity so you know how to navigate it, what value to anchor on, and how to position that back to the customer in their language. And obviously, it's easier said, but ultimately, if you leave a call knowing you know that but super deeply, then you've had that great discovery. Don't overcomplicate it. There's a million specifics and roadmaps in this. You're having a human conversation, and sometimes you really will only have that 15 minutes. So if you can remember those three things, ultimately, you know you know what you need to know to know if you have a deal and then to drive it. Completely agree. I'd only add one thing to that, Andrea, is why now? Ah, good point. Why now? I'm going to add that, and then I'm not going to give you credit for it, Lisa. (laughs) Fair enough. Because, yeah, no, I love it. Like, we talk about that a lot in what we do is, like, the why behind, like, why are we on the phone today? Why? But the why now? Because if there's no urgency behind solving this problem, you mentioned status quo, right? So it's kind of like, okay, well, what changed that now all of a sudden you're willing to solve this problem? (laughs) Yeah, and what are the consequences of not solving it? That's what I mean, like, These three questions are not the only, there's like subsets of things underneath them, but. Oh, sure. Like, but I think that the why now is like, what are we actually driving towards or responding to that's catalyzed that change? And again, it's because you're right. They might say, yeah, we really need to open an office in London, but like sometime in the next five years. And then you're like, well, am I really going to forecast that for this quarter? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or just like also understanding the prioritization, right? Like, so somebody else like CEO decides tomorrow to do some other initiative and that flies in over and above whatever you thought was a prior. Like, doesn't mean your buyer's lying to you. It just means that like that prioritization has not been clear in the power structure or something else is going to... Exactly. I mean, like, gosh, we talk about it all the time. That's where salespeople fall down because they'll hear that cue, right? Someone just says London and they'll be like, oh, well, we operate in London, you know, and then they go into the pitch and they're like, okay, well, where does operating in London exist? I'm just saying that because I'm here. Like, where does operating in London fall vis-a-vis like every other market that you're looking at? Well, it's our primary goal. Okay, then yeah, why now? What happens if you don't? Who's involved in that decision? You know, like then you can start to go deep, but... Yeah, I would say the clarification of the timing and like the relative prioritization. I can't tell you how many times I've been sold to where someone will say, is a problem? And I'll be like, yeah, that's a problem. (laughs) And then nobody's then says, yeah, like out of 100, is this like one or like 97, you know? Yeah, exactly. Right. Just interested in also, because we're talking a lot about this from the salesperson's perspective, but how do you feel about how we've actually kind of trained buyers to want that demo right away? Like when you think about how buyers expect the buying process to go, I just feel like over the last decade of my experience was like, they're expecting that because we taught them to do it. Well, it gets worse than we taught them to do it. I think that this digital economy in which we live has conditioned us as humans to expect that at every turn in every interaction. You want instantaneous hyper-personalization. So I can show you the demo today. Here's my phone. Here, it has three things. There's the case. It's pink. That's my screen. It's blue. Tells you the time, right? There's a demo. Are you satisfied? No. Why not? Well, so Lisa, if that if you said I'm looking for a phone and I said, cool, I just showed it to you, does that satisfy your desire? 
definitely not. Right. right. Like, yeah, well, you have no idea what my problem is. Why do I need a phone? <laughs> exactly. So here we are kind of back to the point of discovery where if we listen to those customers who want like a demo, it's a waste because actually it's not just a waste for you. They're like, what is it you're showing me? I don't care. I have a watch. You're wearing a watch right now, Lisa. You don't need to know the time from my phone. You might need email, right? But I don't know that. So I'm showing you the wrong stuff. So point there is that it's not about conditioning you as a buyer in that interaction. It's the fact that you as a person are now able to go on to Google and say, what is the best phone that has email capabilities? And then you get search results that are really specific to that ask. And it gets worse. Let's go on to Netflix. So you might say, I would like to watch Seinfeld season one, and it comes up. But not only does that come up, a hundred other things come up to say, well, if you like that, you should watch Friends. You should watch Frasier. You should, clearly my anchor point for television shows is like 1994. But that aside, you're using as a consumer, as a person at every pass in your life, don't forget about work, but even just in your life, intelligent suggestions of hyper-personalization. We're actually, most of the platforms on which we're operating, you don't even need to tell them what you want because they're creeping out to your behavior behind the scenes, what you've clicked on, what you've searched for, where you linger, what you watch, what you listen to, what you wear, what you buy, where you live, right? All of these things to then say, hey, Lisa, you might want to consider this phone. Here's why. <laughs> yeah. How many times do you have a conversation at home about why someone needs to vacuum more and all of a sudden in your next Amazon cruise, vacuums are in your feed. So <laughs> the reason I'm saying that is that the conditioning we've had as human beings in that behavior obviously pulls through to our proclivity as buyers because it's the same humans. So think about this format. If you're listening this far, you are probably multitasking, walking or driving or exercising or kind of working, listening to a podcast. People used to sit for hours and read a book. So our attention span, our expectation is so hyper different, but personalization takes time. You used to call someone and say, I have this really specific need or question. And they say, cool, let me come back to you next week. Now, if you're a buyer, you're like, I don't want to just see your phone. I need something hyper specific, but you need to tell me right now or I'm calling your competitor. So for salespeople, they're like, uh, I need to know everything, but like at my fingertips and then being able to adjust super quickly and like, that's a lot, especially if your product or solution is super hard and technical. So in a way, you're right. It's like kind of not fair because buyers don't have the patience, I would say, to either see something generic and then say, cool, thank you for showing me that. I have a few. I would like to tell you specifically what I want to see. I expect you to ask or like mind read that. And then at the same time, if you say, cool, can I come back to you in three days with this? You're like, well, I need an answer now. So I don't think that there's a way to re-educate buyers because I think that the experiences we have as consumers and as people like has changed our collective understanding of what instantaneous, almost spooky personalization means. And we expect that now to show up in every moment of our lives and at work. So I think it's probably like, we all need to agree it needs to be different or we need to all get a little more intelligent with how we meet that need. And I think that that is ultimately going to throw into question what is the role of that salesperson in that interaction 
because you're never going to be as fast or insightful as a computer algorithm to get that insights and surface those right things. So how do we adjust to that reality and capability as opposed to try to tell buyers that the way they want to buy is wrong? I think it's wrong, but no one is ever going to change. So we might as well, like, don't hate the players, hate the game, right? Right, right. Oh my gosh. And and on that note, we'll let our audience ponder that for a while because, Andrea, if anyone was interested in talking to you more about the topics we've covered today, what's your preferred method of communication? Well, I did work at LinkedIn for eight years, so pretty big proponent of that platform. <laughs> It'd be always happy to connect, happy to discuss, happy to share any insight or just talk about mutual challenges. So you can hit me up on LinkedIn. That's usually where I can be found. The surname is spelled A-B-B-A-T-E. That doesn't ever do me any favors, but it's uh, I'm findable. <laughs> all right, Indra, cannot thank you enough for your time today and all the insights that you shared with our audience. So the three questions, well, we'll say four because I'll add my why now for discovery. Uh, very usable people go out tomorrow and try that out. And yeah, it's been great having you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for the great discussion and thanks for adding the fourth question or 3A, should we just say? <laughs> Thank you both for what you do. And it's been a really delight to chat. So hopefully this has been helpful. And yeah, love to hear any feedback from the listeners. Amazing. I think there's lots of great nuggets in here. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode of the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. Check us out at www.b2brevexec.com. Share your favorite episode with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs. Get them off screens for a little while. And you can subscribe through YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify. If you like what you hear, if you're an iTunes user, you can leave us a five-star review there on iTunes. Until next time, my name is Lisa Schneer, and I'm joined by my podcast partner in crime, Carlos Snow. And until next time, we wish you nothing but this greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.